We're starting a new series, and I think I just want to tell you a few things about Moses. We've got one thing that Moses experienced that changed him forever. One aspect of his relationship that we can learn from today. And one virtue in which Moses excelled that we do good to learn from. And beyond that, how all of this points to someone beyond Moses, uh, someone better than him. Um, But first, a quick introduction uh, to Moses and to the book of Exodus. So kind of where I'll be drawing from today is dipping in and about uh, the book of Exodus, which is the has a, a big chunk of Moses' life story, so you, you'll hear more about it in the books that follow it as well, so that's Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, and Moses is, is the, the key figure in, in those books, but today we'll kind of mainly be focusing around Exodus, and in the first half of the book we hear that Moses was a man born to people in slavery, this is a picture around his birth, and he was rescued from an early death by the opportunism and the guile of his mother who saw a way out for him. He was raised in a royal home, but somehow remained an outsider to his people. He made an early naive attempt to intervene on his own for his people's sake, but that ended up going badly wrong. Uh, It led him to murder and to being ostracized from his people, and then fear drove him into exile in a foreign land. Ironically, he was already in a foreign land, but he went away again. But he was an heir to a promise. And he was about to get to know a God who does not forget and who had heard the cry of his people. Moses found that even the holy ground can appear, even in the wilderness. And he learned the name of God barefoot beside a burning bush. A name, as Al has reminded us a bit today, and we've sung about, a name itself, which means and proves that God is who he is. God is faithful to who he is. From the beginning, Moses talked with God, expressing his doubts, exposing his sense of unworthiness in the face of this great call which God made to him. But despite that, despite his sense of smallness, weakness, and unworthiness, Moses obeyed. And he went where the call of God took him. And in the face of his inadequacies, he saw God rescue his people from the hand of Pharaoh. He saw the great deliverance of the first Passover night, where the Israelite nation was led gold and silver and livestock in hand out of Egypt uh, against all the odds. The sea became dry land before him and his enemies were defeated. He learned that God could not only deliver his people, but he could go, prov- go on providing for them. Not just rescue them, but sustain them. Even if that meant food from the sky and water coming out of stones. And by listening to God and by listening to some good advice too, Moses learned to lead God's people. So this is, that's, that's Exodus chapter 1 to 18, roughly, with some bits missed out. Um, <laughs> Uh, thank you, you don't have to read it no, it's fine, <laughs> done um, and the great motif of Israel's story and our story the exodus, the rescue that God enacts for his people's sake but there was more to come than Moses he's already seen enough for a few lifetimes of God's goodness but there was more to come and we get to read how he comes spine tinglingly close to the presence of God the glory of his character displayed for us to see and marvel at Rather than listen to my summary of the next 
20 chapters. Uh, there's a, I just do this partly because it's a really good summary, but also to point you to this as a, a resource for when you're bored. This is a, a website taken from um, Bible Hub, I think, dot com, probably. Um, the link's available later. Uh, but you can um, watch this and learn about the next few chapters. The book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence presence. They had this close relationship with him and it was good. But humanity rebels and the relationship is fractured and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them. And it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. That it includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And, and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up, because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me, and... Don't worship idol statues. Right. And so here we are, immediately after agreeing to the covenant, they're throwing this ritual party, they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what, this is, this is not going to work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is 
A really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something? Yeah, it does seem odd. But this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions. And he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it, and in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. Great, thank you. Um, so that's, that's the introduction. That's Moses. That's his story. That's where the book of Exodus fits in the, the bigger picture. I'm sure you can already start to see some of the ways in which what we all know about the Christian story gets prefigured or uh, illustrated in some way there. So I said one thing that Moses experienced. Um, Moses encountered the sacred. Um, Moses first met God in a burning bush, and God's call to him changed his life. From being mainly about sheep and just hanging out with Jethro, that was his father-in-law, to being someone who rescued a nation, to being the mouthpiece of God, and to presiding over the formation of a way of life that would last for thousands of years, a God-oriented way of life that sustained the nation. Just your normal Thursday at work with the sheep. Um, Except it was, it really was just a normal day for Moses. Moses was about his normal job of tending sheep, and there in the midst of that, God shows up. So after this remarkable, yet somehow unremarkable introduction, Moses forged a relationship with God. He he had a long, faithful walk of obedience. They they had history together. I can kind of imagine later on in a quiet day in the wilderness, Moses turning to God and saying, do you remember when, you know, the river turned to blood and... You know, they split the sea. Oh, we did that. We did that. We, uh, oh, the rock that we... You remember the rock? Do you remember the manna that came from heaven? I just, this was a long obedience. where shared history. the shared adventures and shared stories that Moses had with God. Um, incidentally, does anyone know what the word manna means? So, exactly. It means what is it? Which I, I, I don't think I would have ever grown tired of that joke. What, what is it for dinner today? <laughs> Until Erica basically just... Kick me out, wouldn't give me any manner. Kids asking, what is it for dinner today, Dad? Yep. <laughs> um, so they, they had this shared history and this kind of relationship of uh, experience together. And so for Moses, actually in Exodus 19, when we see this great kind of fearsome scene which caused most of the rest of Israel to tremble and be petrified, Moses is somehow different to that. He... I think he had quite a scared-looking face on the, on the picture, but there's no mention of him being fearful to enter God's presence at that point. Um, he, it talks later that he was scared, but actually what he was scared about was that God would not relent and would not forgive Israel's sins when they forged the golden calf. 
I'm going to read, read that little bit to you from Exodus 19, uh, which the, the story talks about. It's in 19, verse 16, if you want to follow it in your Bible. It says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. Moses heard the call of God to come up to him, and he went. Um, He was the glorious, awesome, fearsome, wild, unpredictable presence of God, and it was too much for some petrified that God would speak to them. But for Moses and for us, there was an invitation to come up. I, I heard it this morning. I don't know if you heard it too. As we went into worship, there was a call to come up. Um, and it says in Hebrews chapter 12, where this story is kind of replayed uh, uh, for the church. Um, I'm going to read it to you as well. It says in Hebrews 12, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's a different core to us Um, Tom Wright writes in his commentary, at the center of this contrast between Mount Sinai, which is what we have here, and Mount Zion, which is what the writer in the Hebrews says, is the contrast between a holiness which is terrifying and unapproachable and a holiness which is welcoming, cleansing, and healing. So church, when we meet together, when we meet in our communities, when we turn to God in prayer, we come before an awesome God. Our God is a consuming fire. The, Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews was not afraid to quote. We may not see a burning bush. We may not see a mountain scorched with flame like this. We may see Chris standing here with a guitar. We may see frazzled parents on a Wednesday evening. We may see a friend or a brother and sister in the Lord. But don't let your eyes deceive you. We are daily, weekly invited to an encounter with God. And when we do, we're coming before the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate one, the slow to anger one, the one who forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. This isn't just an earthly spectacle. 
It's a heavenly encounter with God coming to us. The Holy One who welcomes us. He cleanses us and he bids us, like Moses, come up to me. And like Rod said, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Um, sometime later, actually, we see Moses again uh, and the glory of God on a mountain. And we hear Moses speaking of another exodus. Only it's not Moses' voice this time that God wants his people to listen to. Neither is Moses the most radiant person on that mountain. Uh, As Peter writes in his second letter about what we call the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is an encounter with the sacred that Moses had, which is for us, if, as much if not more than it was for Moses. Secondly, there's one aspect of Moses' life that I think uh, we can grow in. And I think I already hinted at it a bit in how I described Moses' encounter, in that it wasn't just a spectacle. It happened in the midst of his everyday life. Moses had what is described in Exodus 33. It says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. They really knew each other. I simply want to say today that this kind of face-to-faceness is on offer for us. More than that, it's God's call to us. It's his zealous desire for us, for him to be able to speak with us face-to-face as a man might speak to a friend. We saw in the video, I think you saw about how God instructed the building of this tent, uh, the tabernacle, where uh, his presence was designed to rest. It said, let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So both sort of symbolically and, and really, actually, this tent was built, this tabernacle became the visible place where God's presence was. In the world, it was the kind of intersection between God's realm up here and human realm down here. Somehow, at this point, they came together, and it, it such a kind of vital connection that it overflowed in cloud and fire and smoke, and it was it was visible. God wants to dwell with His people. A bit later on in the story of Israel, Solomon builds a temple, which is basically the settled-down, non-nomadic version of the tabernacle. And again, God's glorious presence fills that place. You read in 2 Chronicles, like a cloud and a fire come down on the temple. God wants to dwell with his people. And later still, a baby came to earth. One greater than the temple, in whom all the fullness of God lived bodily. The word became flesh And made his tent among us. The spirit of God came upon him on his baptism from heaven. And God thunders, this is my son whom I love. God longs to dwell with his people. And not too much later, as Jesus' friends gathered in hope, expectation, probably a little bit of fear, fire again came and rested. Not on a building this time. Not on a tent but on some people. No temple was needed anymore. No tabernacle. 
Because God, by his spirit, has chosen to come and live in us. We are his temple. God longs to dwell within his people. Fill us to the overflow, we sang this morning. And that's why. Fill us to the overflow, God. That's his hope and desire. We really can know the kind of face-to-face relationship with God that Moses had. Because God is living in us. Moses' face-to-face walk with God made his actual face radiant with the glory of God, so much so that he had to wear a veil over him to, I don't know, stop freaking people out. But in the same way that approaching Mount Zion is a better version of what the Israelites did when they approached Mount Sinai, the glory of God shining from us is a better version than the glory of God that shone from Moses. Moses' face-to-face walk was what enabled him to take up the role that Israel was meant to be taking up, which was to be the priesthood of God, a kingdom of priests, to minister God's ways and God's words to a world that was unfamiliar with them. Uh, It was Israel's destiny, but as you read that story, Moses is carrying that alone for most of that time. Um, But it's our destiny too, a thread that goes from Abraham through Revelation to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So just a a couple of practical pointers about this face-to-face walk with God that Moses enjoyed. Even before there was a tabernacle, even before that was there as a place to dwell with, let alone the big extravagant experiences on Mount Sinai, Moses had what was called the tent of meeting. A tent that he put up outside the camp, and he used to go and meet with God there. And I wonder one question God may ask you today is, where's your tent of meeting? No actual tents required, but a place of peace and a place for a conscious decision to go to be where God is. Where's your tent of meeting today? Moses and the people prepared themselves to meet with God. Uh, They had their symbolic acts of confession and consecration and Sometimes abstinence. We consecrate ourselves, as it says in 2 Corinthians, by gazing upon and reflecting God the Father and God the Son. And so we are transformed into his image with the glory that comes from the Holy Spirit in us. So that's one thing that Moses experienced, one kind of way of walking that Moses had. uh, And a virtue that Moses exemplified for us to grow in. I'll explain the picture in a minute, but maybe some of you already know what's going on in this picture. Um, In Numbers chapter uh, 12, Moses is described as um, a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Um, Words that if you try and say about yourself, you will only end up sounding like an egomaniac. Um, But Moses' humility was possible only because of his life spent gazing upon one much more worthy than him. Much, more, much greater, but much more loving as well. And this, this humility is seen in his, his obedience. He did the things that God said in just the way that God said. 
But there was, of course, the one time he didn't do this, and you can read about that later in the story, but I think that's stark for its difference because Moses spent his life doing the words God spoke in the way that God had spoken. It was seen in Moses listening to advice. It was seen in his willingness to be cut off from God for the sake of his people. Um, in English, we use the word humble, uh, and we, it kind of has a few different overtones. We, we can say things like, oh, uh, I was from humble beginnings, which is true, I was from the Midlands, so it must, must be true. Um, where we mean kind of lowly circumstances or some kind of uh, low position. Or, or we can say, oh, she's so humble, where we, we kind of mean a way of thinking and acting that is somehow honorable and great. Um, and, in, and in that case, you, you can be a very wealthy, very humble person. That's definitely a, 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 a possibility. Um, the word used to describe Moses is the Hebrew word, I don't know how to pronounce it, forgive my Hebrew, anav. Um, and it's, it's related to the making yourself low. It doesn't mean that he was poor or that he was lowly by birth, but he, it means that he was accustomed to making himself low. It is at the core of a worshipful life. Um, interestingly, it's, it's the same word used in Psalm 37 where it gets translated in our Bibles as the meek shall inherit the earth, um, which are words that are familiar to us because Jesus himself quotes these words in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, using, uh, and the word that gets translated into Greek is the same word that we also have as gentleness. So when, the, when Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit in us, he says, By, uh, fruit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness or meekness. And this is all related to the same word. I think this is good news. Um, firstly, because it doesn't, the essence of this word meek doesn't mean that we have to be docile or we have to be powerless, which the word meek might sometimes sound to us. It actually means to exercise power with gentleness and reserve. More so, almost to exercise God's power under his control. It is gentle strength. It is the ability to make ourselves low so that God can be lifted at high. It's exactly the kind of power that Steve was talking about last week. Um, and secondly, this, this is, it's a habit of thinking that is open to us whatever our outward circumstances are. You can be a top-ranking military officer full of gentle strength. You can be an Olympic athlete weightlifter full of gentle strength. You can be a successful businessman, a manager, a leader, a teacher, all with meekness. Whatever our current circumstances, whether rich or poor, high or low, we can choose ways of making ourselves low and exercising our power such that others will benefit. You know what, though, there's a, there is a special grace, says God, for those who feel in low circumstance. God says in James, he says, for those of you in who are lowly in low circumstances, take pride in your high position. I think that's God's word for you today. If you feel in low circumstances, God says, it's not, it's not how I see it. By my metric, says God, you're high up in my order. 
And he says, for those who are rich, take pride in your lowly circumstances. So this act of making ourselves low, it could, could work out in many ways. Um, it may mean physically getting low in worship. It may mean physically getting low next time you're out on the street and you see someone in need. It may mean sitting down next to them and making yourself low alongside them. It may mean choosing the smallest piece of cake on offer, Jimmy, so, <laughs> so that someone else can have the largest. Uh, I, I mean, I pointed Jimmy. I could have pointed at myself. I mean, it's not. It's not fair. Um, it may mean saying sorry. When was the last time you said a sorry that felt costly? Uh, Probably not because you haven't done anything wrong. That's my general study. But it's saying sorry is a way of making ourselves low. It may mean being less concerned with whether you're promoted at work and more concerned with whether your colleagues are. It may mean resisting and perhaps subverting some of the markers our society has of highness. What car you drive, what handbag you carry, or what you wear. It may mean, well, it will mean, valuing others above ourselves. One way we may get there a little bit by little bit is by praying a prayer, which we'll come to at the end. And thirdly, I think this, it's good news that this is what humility means, is that it really is a fruit of the Spirit. We're not alone left to work this out on ourselves, to make ourselves right but we have God in us, working in us and with us to develop this gentle strength. Without him, we couldn't. With him, there is freedom. Um, when thinking about humility, and actually with many virtues, what, what we do is we practice and practice in little ways so that what is unnatural at first becomes natural. Uh, we do small steps that may feel forced and clunky, so that at some point we can dance in time. Um, for at some point, something will happen that will reveal to us what we're truly like in our hearts. Um, whether our instinct really is yet tuned to take the smallest piece of cake <laughs> will become clear next time cake gets offered. Um, how we really think about colleagues at work will get shown up next time promotions come around. Um, which leads us to this image. Um, uh, but probably not this image, um, which is a similar feature found in archaeological. It turns out it's not true, and it is not actually coming home. Um, I, I don't know if you can see here as well. Um, over the last like, month of dryness... Uh, What's happened is all sorts of hidden archaeological features have started to show up on the earth. This is just Ifley Church down where I live, and I noticed yesterday that you could see some new feature. That, like, There's obviously some building that was built out the front of there before that has left its mark. And as the sun has baked the earth, you can see in this picture all the ancient riverbeds and ways in which the soil was shaped over centuries before have become revealed. Before that, as you know, when, when it was raining and when the normal climate has uh, been occurring, it was all left 
pretty much equal. The rain and the soil made everything invisible. But here, the sun has baked it so much that ancient things have been revealed. I think God is speaking through these images for some today and saying, you've been hard-baked. You've been dried out. You've been exposed and feel raw. But God says, what has been exposed are some deep treasures, some strong fortifications. And as the blurring, kind of planarizing stuff of life is shrunk, something deeper has come into focus. God says, there will be rain, there will be refreshing and renewal, but ponder now what has been revealed in you. Reflect on how to build now in these ways. Um, Kneel and be refreshed. But for all of us, I think, there's an encouragement here to lay brick by brick the foundations of humility and the cornerstone of meeting with God face to face. Because someday light will shine on this and reveal what is underneath. And what we hope to find is humility meekness, gentle strength. Same kind of gentle strength as the one who said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The one who showed the ultimate act of getting low. Though he was in nature God, he made himself nothing taking the nature of a servant. The one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. The one whose ultimate exercise of power involved giving himself over to death on a cross for us. It says, so that's one thing, a way of Moses walks that we can grow in. For me, all of this, it points to Jesus. It was always foreseen and mentioned in Deuteronomy that God would raise up one like Moses as a prophet for his people. But it turned out so much more than a prophet. We've seen him in the encounter, in the transfiguration, declared by God from the cloud to be his son, the one we should listen to. We've seen him as the one who ultimately, the ultimate reflector of God's glory. He's been face to face with God for all eternity. And we have seen him as the ultimate example of one who became low for the sake of others. He is Jesus and he is our Lord. Moses is a superb example for us. I think his story will nourish any one of you who goes and reads it. He was, you could say a lot more. We could say a lot more about how he was willing to sacrifice himself for his people's sake. But it's to Jesus we bow. Jesus, it's you we worship today. So I encourage you to encounter him today at work, at family, at home, over meals. Know him face to face. He lives within you. And become low. Practice ways of getting low like he did for us. To see his power exercised through us that we can be priests telling the whole world the words and the ways of God. Steve, continue.